Welcome to Actualize, a podcast focused on the intersection of performance, ambition, and mental health. I'm your host, Rob Pantwala. My goal for the show is to not only celebrate success, but also shed light on the challenges and sacrifices that come with ambition. Actualize is brought to you by First Session. Launched in 2019, I started First Session to help you find the right therapist. First Session is purposely designed more like a dating website than a clinical website, as we're completely focused on helping you find the right fit the first time. My team and I interview and vet our partner therapists, so you can simply browse videos, see who you vibe with, and instantly book a session. Check us out at firstsession.com and see why more than 7,000 Canadians have chosen First Session to find a therapist. This episode is with Christopher Brown, who is a licensed therapist based in Washington State. Chris is also a former U.S. Marine who's been on three deployments, twice in Iraq and once in Afghanistan. During our conversation, Chris discusses his entry into the Marines and shares more about his experience going to war. He touches on some of the traumatic experiences which occurred during his time at war and his difficulty reintegrating into society after his years of service. Chris talks about his own counseling journey, which greatly helped with his PTSD and also inspired him to become a therapist himself. We talk about EMDR, a therapy modality that is used to help people heal from trauma and reframe difficult memories. Finally, Chris explains more about psychedelic therapy and specifically the preparation and integration work that he does and some of the promise that psychedelic assisted therapy brings. Although Chris is a therapist, this episode is not intended to be therapy, and please note that the use of psychedelic substances is illegal in many areas of North America. I hope you enjoy this episode with Chris Brown. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat and super excited to to get started here. Likewise, thanks for having me. So you have a super interesting story, and I'd love to start with just your upbringing. I know you uh, were in the Marines, but I wanted to start with what was your upbringing that kind of guided you to join um, the Marine and what sort of parts of your path uh, contributed to that? Yeah, well, you know, I think a lot of people join for a few common reasons. Some might be family history of military service. Some folks that I've interacted with in service joined to kind of get out of you know rough upbringing rough neighborhood place that they live others joined for college benefits and others kind of joined just wanting to test their metal and i feel like for me it was a little bit of each of those you know i didn't have a i didn't come from a super rough neighborhood i also didn't see a whole lot of opportunity if I stuck around and being a first generation college student, I didn't really, I didn't really know what my options were as far as like pursuing higher education. I knew that if I joined the military, there would be options later on. So I thought, okay, well, that makes sense for me. Uh, But this was a couple of years after 9-11, 2004 is when I went in and 9-11 happened 2001. So it's kind of pretty, still pretty early in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, I knew that I was probably going to be going to a war zone, choosing the Marine Corps. And my 17, 18 year old logic, it made sense to me that rather than depending on, you know, a machine to keep me safe, I needed to learn everything I could to keep myself safe. So I joined the infantry. Wow. Which is like backwards thinking about it now, uh, yeah. but that that's, that was part of my rationale for kind of the job I chose, knowing that I'd probably be going into a war zone. Wow! Uh, I didn't realize that it meant I would definitely be going into the front lines of the war zone. 
but the recruiting doesn't tell you all that. Yeah, um, crazy. Yeah, when you say first generation college student, do you mean the first in your family to to go to college? Yes. Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. My oh. wife, you know, she, she her parents went to college, both of them, and when I got out, she was finishing up her undergrad, and she she walked me through all of it. You know, this is what grants look like. These are student loans. You know, I didn't. Fortunately, I didn't have to take student loans because of the GI Bill. But I was like a lost puppy trying to go into college. And, you know, my parents didn't go. They, they didn't have a frame of reference. They didn't know. I don't think they even knew grants were a thing. And I certainly did it. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, college wasn't even really a consideration before I joined the military. It wasn't until after that I realized, you know, there's a lot of opportunity that can come from going to school. Yeah, yeah. So what it, how long was the training and when were you first deployed? Like what happened in that? Like, did you feel prepared for what you were <laughs> about to step into? I mean, not really. I don't think anyone can be fully be prepared for that kind of thing till they just do it. But the training was pretty good. As far as Marine Corps training goes, I was stationed out uh, in 29 Palms, California, which is a big Marine training base. And so we had a lot of training opportunity. You know, some of the ranges that Marines will do once a year before they deploy, like it's a requirement for deployment to go through some of these training evolutions. We were doing them pretty regularly, for better or worse. I mean, it was a lot. I do feel like it, it helped, at least physically and tactically but psychologically going into a war zone like that's a hard thing to prepare for and particularly you know like the reality of being on the ground in another country where there there's an enemy trying to hurt you but they're not wearing you know a uniform like that's some tricky stuff to navigate especially for someone in their late teens early 20s yeah, I bet. Wow. It, 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 and just a, I'm curious for those who don't know the differences, including myself here, the Marines, how do the Marines um, stack up to other, you know, options that you faced in terms of joining the, the service? Where do the Marines lie in, in the whole picture? So the Marines are a department of the Navy. They're part of the Navy but they're, they operate as their own branch of the military. And the analogy is like, they're the soldiers of the Navy. Uh, so historically, you know, wherever the country has needed to do war like business, uh, you know, Marines on Navy ships end up going into whatever land-based place there is that needs to be, uh, that's within the nation's, I guess, interests. Uh, and so, like, that's kind of the history of the Marine Corps is, like, being really tied to the Navy like mm -hmm. that. And, you know, like, they developed a pretty strong reputation for war fighting. Uh, and, again, like, my early teens sort of mindset, it's like, well, these people have a pretty good reputation for knowing how to fight war. I should probably, if I'm going to go to war, I should probably learn from them. <laughs> yeah. You know, Marines, like, they have pretty high esteem for themselves. And that's certainly true of the recruiters as well. But all things said, I do feel like I was around a group of people who, if, if I were to be in a war zone, they're who I would want to be with. Like, I did feel a certain level of trust that the people to my left and right would be able to, you know, look out for me too just as I was for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how you kind of laugh at your teenage way of thinking, but like, it, I totally get it. You know, I totally get kind of just going all in being hardcore. If you're going to do it, might as well go all the way. I get that <laughs> mindset and I don't think that's yeah. that uncommon, but I, I, they're, I mean, the Marine Corps is not like special forces. You know, the Navy has the seals for that. The army in terms of training level, I've heard 
the Marine Corps compared most to like like Army Army Ranger kind of status. You know, similar infantry focus, similar emphasis on leadership. Uh, you know, the way Army does things is a little different than the way the Marine Corps does things. But I think that's probably the closest comparison that we have within our branches of U.S. or Armed Forces. Yeah. So regarding leading up to your first deployment, like how much time was that in training? And that was a yeah. What did it feel like? Yeah, like only only a few months. Like, what did it feel like yeah. when you were on your way out? In the, in the Marines, we had a school of infantry, which was, I think, three months. And then once you finish that school, you go to your unit. And I trained with my unit for another, I think, three to six months, I want to say. Uh, then we went on our first deployment. And the, the senior Marines there, they had deployed before the year prior, kind of one of the first groups after the invasion in Iraq and they were all pretty jaded. They didn't have a whole, like, I think a lot of those guys enlisted before nine 11. So they had like, they, I don't think they really expected all this and they were, you know, pretty low motivation and wanted to leave as soon as they could. And so this was kind of the group that we showed up with and they did their best to train us up to, you know, survive that kind of environment. But it wasn't until we got back and were and got our own kind of junior Marines and we were now like the more senior platoon that I started taking like leadership more seriously and training more seriously. And fortunately we had a lot of really great training before that second deployment because that second deployment ended up being the hardest of the three that I went on. Uh, that was where I got, I was wounded. Um, there was just a lot of gunfights and a lot of threats at the time. And that was during kind of the 2007, they come with the troop surge. There was just a lot of stuff happening over there at the time. So I did, you know, in four years, I did three deployments. The third one was to Afghanistan. And, you know, between me getting wounded on my second one and several of my uh, close friends also being wounded, uh, you know, in our battalion, which is battalion would be close to several hundred people, a few hundred people in a battalion. In our battalion, we had 41 Marines who were killed on my three deployments. And so I was like, you know, it's, I'm not going to re-enlist. I need to go find something else to do because I'm just burned out on this stuff. And when I got home, I realized pretty quickly, like I had changed and I got, I ended up fortunately getting into counseling really soon in the first couple of months of getting out. And I did individual and group counseling for a good year and a half, two years while I was starting to kind of get into school and use the GI Bill. And during that process, I I made the decision because I had started school on like taking classes in computer information systems. I was kind of per- planning to pursue IT field. Mm-hmm. Through my own counseling and a psychology class I took, I realized like I, sh- I should probably focus on this type of career instead. And I'm really glad I made that decision because it's opened up a lot of doors, given me a chance to help a lot of people along the way. So, yeah, that was that looking back on that period of my life, it's like kind of hard to imagine that was even me at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's been a lot that's happened since too. But yeah, like just thinking of being in a war zone with, you know, 50 to 100 pounds of gear on my back walking for miles kind of waiting to get shot at it's like that's hard to believe i did that but i did i know i did i've got scars to prove it (laughs) oh gosh yeah so yeah so you're now you've been a therapist for 
many years now, a psychotherapist. But before we dive into that a little bit more, like when I'd love to hear, like, was your real education in this space of, I guess, mental, emotional, psychological health? Was that when you went to counseling after you exited the Marines, like completely exited? When did you start to think about your mental health? It was right after. And I put a lot of thought into this early on, kind of like, why didn't it seem like I had issues while I was still in? And I think it's because we had all been through the same kind of situations. We were all kind of, you know, dealing with it in a similar way. We had each other there. It just didn't feel like a problem. You know, being in the barracks with a bunch of other Marines who you just got home from war with, like kind of a celebratory, you know, environment. And it felt normal. But, you know, the second you're separated from that environment and now you're around people who don't know what you've been through, have never experienced what you've gone through, can't really relate. And you start to notice all these little things about yourself that you didn't notice before. That's when it kind of started to kick in. And, you know, I was in those first, in that first months of getting out, I was also like, I I was a, what they call a partial deployer. So I came home early from my deployment because my end of enlistment date was during the deployment. And so within a few weeks, I was in Afghanistan one day, a few weeks later, I'm home for good. And most of my unit is still over there. And there was some like survivor's guilt and like some strong feelings associated with that too. So that certainly played into probably my, like the intensity of the observations that I was making at that time. And, and was it your choice to start counseling at that time was it put right in front of you as an option or like was there any sort of uh was no. there any like big kind of event or anything that kind of made you yeah it, start I mean, it's kind of embarrassing to talk about but there was an incident I, my wife and i were staying at my parents house in like preparation to move back and her finish up her last year in school and we were like while well, our stuff was packed, we were going to move. I think it was like the day before we moved to where we were going. I had a friend, we had a friend of mine over, long t- childhood friend, and we were drinking. And I ended up having this sort of like blackout switch that happened. And I, I beat him up pretty badly. It was a pretty embarrassing night. But that next week, like, a, yeah, because we moved, so we moved up the day after that happened, and then my dad came over a few days later, and he had a conversation with me about when he was in the Navy, an incident where he got into a fight with a friend of his, and he had made this comment like, "I I went and talked to somebody about my anger," and that was his way of saying like, "I I saw a counselor and they helped me." yeah and so then he and so he followed it up with like you know i want to encourage you to do that too and so then like within a couple days i did some research and found out there was a va clinic like 10 minutes for me that specialized in ptsd therapy and i was like you know i called him and was like you know i think i might have ptsd i don't know i should probably talk to someone (laughs) and the guy I, God bless. He met me. I think it was on Veterans Day. Like the office would normally have been closed, but he decided to go in and meet me. And I ended up working with him for a good year and a half, two years. And you know, interesting story. We might get to it later, but I also ended up working with him as a therapist. You know, a few years after that, more as like peers, as a colleague. So it was really kind of neat being able to you know, have that strong history there. Uh, the, the office I was in, and I don't know if this is getting too far ahead of things, but there's a, there was a strong emphasis in kind of the culture at the time of that 
part of the VA around kind of peer support. And so like this counselor was a veteran too. And several of like, all of the counseling staff were veterans there. And, you know, once I did my healing and did my schooling, they were excited to hire me as a veteran who's kind of been down that road too and could help other people find that healing as well. So it was really awesome, just a safe place and kind of just what I needed at that stage of my life. Yeah, that sounds great. It also strikes me that that still was all on you to kind of seek that out. And I mean, it's great that you knew where to look, right? I'm curious around part of your healing process when, like, we don't have to get too much into the details if you don't want, but I'm curious, like, you know, they say that, like, healing is, is not often linear and, you know, a year and a half you were there. And I'm curious, like, what that looked like, if that was just, you know, slowly learning what you'd been through or if there was a certain like approach or something that 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 really worked for you or like was there any kind of epiphanies or anything like that yeah i'm curious well i this therapist did emdr and i did a lot of emdr with him and i think the one thing that sticks out now as being really like profound, drove home the point that this is the path I need to be on. I was in that first year or two, I was having panic attacks at school when I was in college and they all seemed to be in the same classroom. And I remember one day, like it was, I, I had like a literal flashback of a fireball and for a brief scene, it, it looked like the whole classroom was being consumed by a fireball. And my nervous system just like went into this panic state. I had to leave. I went home. I had to lay on the couch for the rest of the day. And that next week, that, or at my next session, we did EMDR on the suicide bombing that I was in. And the therapist, while doing EMDR, kind of left and right really bringing up vivid parts of the memory asked me to slow down time on just the moments right after the blast and in that moment I had this feeling like I noticed that change of air pressure that happens in an explosion and I, it just clicked instantly like this is the same shift in air pressure that happens in that classroom at school whenever the AC unit turns on. And this, it, like I realized, I put it together and I realized like the AC unit was triggering this, these symptoms I was dealing with. And, you know, we kept going with processing that event and kind of cleared that event enough to, and so it was more manageable. And I, like, I've still had some minor panic attacks since but i've never experienced another like legit flashback like that ever since doing that emdr session and so for me like the one example from emdr that really sticks out but i I did emdr and several different things and you know talking about like how therapy is not necessarily linear it wasn't until probably like three years after I finished therapy and I was kind of just, I was doing my own thing with the nonprofit that I had started. And one night I was kind of in that state between wake wakefulness and sleep. And I, I had this really vivid flash in my memory of like after that explosion, there was a big gunfight that had happened and there was part of it that I had just blacked out from like it that memory was just blank in my mind but it came back like three years after and I wasn't in therapy at the time but it was the moment that I was shot through the leg and I guess like my brain like maybe knew I wasn't ready for that until this time three years after therapy even it had 
by then I had enough kind of skills and resources to be able to deal with that in a healthy way. But it was, that, that was, I think a good example of how this healing, it just, it's a lifelong thing. I mean, there's still things to this day that I have to kind of pause and reflect on and work through on my own. And that'll probably be the case until I die. I'm okay with that. I, like I, I know how now, right? I teach. One of the things I was saying early on, I was becoming a therapist was like, I teach the things every day that I need to remember the most too, right? <laughs> and I wish I could like, claim that as my own original thought, but I actually heard that from an AA sponsor one one time that was in one of our groups, our therapy groups, but it resonated so much that I've used it ever since. I love um, that. I feel like I got on a tangent there. What no, was that the original was, question? No, that was, thank you for sharing that. I'd love to provide a little bit more context for those listening. I know you practice this now, uh, but EMDR and that being a modality for how you treat or help people reframe trauma and PTSD. And I'd love to hear, uh, you've obviously had the patient client experience and now you're the practitioner on the other side. I know EMDR is a lot more popular over the last little while too. So I'd love to hear you maybe explain what it does. Yeah, of course. So EMDR, it's an acronym eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. And this has been around since 89, 90, early, early 1990s is when they started kind of developing this. And it's been pretty heavily researched since then. I've proven to be effective in one of the top tier kind of treatment modalities, especially for PTSD. Uh, but a lot of therapists have adapted the original protocols for other kind of niche mental health areas. Uh, but what the research that I've looked at has shown is there's two, two things happening in the brain at the same time when we have this left and right, they call it bilateral stimulation. So eye movements left and right, there are certain EMDR tools where we can have like paddles in your hands go left to right or beepers, you know, headphones that'll beep left and right. When I, you know, when I was seeing clients in person, I had a machine that did all three at the same time, just like really optimized bilateral left and right. But what's happening in the brain with this bilateral stimulation is two things. So first is it's activating the hippocampus, which is where we have like our memory. And so we're able to see more vividly memories that we're focused on. And at the same time, there's kind of a slight, not entirely, but like a slight suppression of the amygdala, which is our fight or flight response. And so like you can look real close at a difficult memory without being completely overwhelmed by it. And as you can imagine, that sets the stage for like a brain state that's really ripe for healing. A common analogy that people use is REM, like rapid eye movement stage of sleep. And so like the assumption or the theory was, you know, when the eyes are moving like this, the brain is able to efficiently process information. And, you know, if you think about it, like, REM sleep, it kind of helps us sort of defrag, clear out, and optimize for the next day, kind of saying, like, that's what's going on when we're sleeping. And so similarly, like when we have, when we're focused on a target memory with, with eye movement, with EMDR, we can efficiently process information. And that includes like physical sensations that are associated with trauma, emotions that are associated with trauma, kind of all the above, really. It is a very efficient tool. And uh, like the reason I picked it, besides the fact that I benefited so much from it, is out of the other tools that exist, specifically for PTSD and trauma, it requires the least amount of homework for the client. And, you know, from my experience, you know, the, the least amount of homework 
tends to lead to the highest amount of like retention, like continuing through to the end of therapy. <laughs> a lot of times clients will just get burned out on homework and it's like, you know, re-triggering all sorts of stuff and it can be very problematic. It it was a natural fit for me and my style and, you know, the way that I think about therapy and how it should go. It just sounds incredible. I mean, I have friends that have, I've never done EMDR. I think I've done brain spotting myself, which I know may have some similar principles, um, but I have some friends that have really benefited from EMDR. I did want to ask more about, in my experience, uh, running my company for a session and speaking with many people, seeking therapy for some trauma-related issues, challenges. I think a big part of and, and these might not be, you know, severe PTSD cases, but for people who know that some something in their past is traumatic, a big reason for people not to seek out the help is because they think they need to kind of reface it, right? They, they, it's really painful to relive, right? Um, and I think what you were saying about the act of EMDR making that a little bit more accessible, but I was also curious about, you know, when people seek out EMDR, it's like, oh, I'm just going to go and like kind of get right into that like trauma spot and boom, boom, look a few directions and it'll be done. Like, uh, you know, to me, that's like maybe how it can be framed and sold. But like, I'm curious what your experience is like around the comfort level of opening up. Like if people are afraid yeah. to relive that trauma, what does it look like from the start of seeking therapy to actually maybe starting the EMDR? And in your experience, it sounded like, as more memories and more sensations would come up, you would address them with EMDR, it sounds like, over a period of time. Um, yeah. So that's a great question. And there's a lot that I want to address there. But just to paint a picture of ideally new client get through EMDR, kind of what that looks like, what it ought to look like. First thing is to develop stabilization. And that would include like grounding techniques, coping strategies, like assessing like what are the things that you do that you know can help you manage distress and making sure that like, you know, I often am teaching clients several different tools that they can experiment with and find the ones that work for them and allow some time to play out for them to develop a sense of confidence or competency in their ability to use tools when they're feeling distressed because EMDR can be a, you know, it can bring up distressing feelings. And before we do that, you know, I think it's, I think it's ethical that before we do that, we know that you can manage that distress before beforehand. And so like, that's a big part of the beginning stages of EMDR is, is the preparation before you actually do the EMDR. Um, and then once, it, once it's kind of starting to look like, you know, the client is feeling confident in their ability to use these techniques, then the next part of the preparation is to like develop a list of potential traumas, you know, things like the most five to 10, like five to 10 most significant things that happened to you in your life that may have led to this sort of nervous system adaptation that trauma can create. And then we, once we have that list, we kind of rate each thing on that list, zero to 10, where zero is no big deal. 10 is the worst thing you could imagine to kind of get a baseline sense of like, how is this person storing these memories? And like, how are they, how is it affecting them when they think about it? And once we have that list, then we kind of get strategic about, you know, where would we want to start? And sometimes there's like an obvious theme that pops up, like, you know, maybe there's instant, like a theme around abuse or neglect or safety uh, or theme around like responsibility, like I, I did something wrong that I'm feeling guilty about related to trauma. You know, if it was like when I was at the VA, there was usually like military stuff and then childhood stuff. And those were the kind of clearly two different themes. But, you know, the trauma, there's some, some links between the two. And so we would kind of get clear on the themes, and then we would, we would 
you know, depending on the client and their comfort level, you know, the conventional wisdom of EMDR is if you go to the first or the worst, you're going to have the biggest, you know, bang for the buck, the most positive outcomes as a result of that. However, you know, this is kind of a weird thing that we ask people to do and often feels uncomfortable just thinking about. So a way to sort of ease into that might be, let's sort of just pick something that's in the middle, like a five or six. It's not the worst thing, but it's still on the list. It's significant. We'll start there so you can have some experience, kind of take that crawl, walk, run approach. And because it's on the list, like the EMDR works, you'll notice there's been some positive shifting in how you're holding on to that memory. And that tends to lead to some more kind of confidence in the process and doing the harder work after. Uh, and so, you know, you had observed, you know, it kind of seems like you might do EMDR for a while as stuff comes up because that, and that, that's true because sometimes what somebody's like eight, nine or 10 is today, if you clear that out, that might make room for something else to kind of fill its place. And, you know, they say like in nature, whenever there's a vacuum created, something always will come in to fill its place. And for some clients, it can kind of feel like whack-a-mole for a little while. It's like, you know, this memory that I've had suppressed for so long, it's come up now. Okay, I'm going to deal with that. So like that can be, and that's definitely more, more common with like really complex trauma situations where they've just got multiple traumas over the course of their life. For single incident traumas, you know, you might only need to do EMDR a handful of times, like maybe even once, uh, more likely probably at least two or three, and you might be fine, you'd be good to go. But, you know, most, I think most people have more trauma than that, at least the people that I end up seeing. That was also long-winded, but uh, <laughs> I it. No, it's great. The question. I think what I can pick up from just that explanation is like the way that you approach it is a way that will ideally get the therapy seeker comfortable with you as their practitioner and opening up in front of you and like not judging any of these experiences. Maybe you don't even need them to vocalize them, right? Like they could just be happening in their own minds. Which is interesting. And I also wanted to just point out and ask you the question. So, you know, you've, you're a therapist who practices EMDR, and I want to talk about the other stuff that you practice next. And, you know, you have been to three deployments in war zones. You've been in many gunfights and you got shot in the leg. At least that's <laughs> at least what I know. I'm sure there's more, right? I think a lot of people think that if they don't have something like that, then it's not worth like they're, you know, they don't have trauma. If Chris's trauma is pretty intense, I don't have anything like that. So EMDR is probably not for me because what do you think about that, you know, way of thinking? Yeah. I hear this, this sentiment all the time. And my response is always the same. You're not doing yourself any favors by comparing your experience to someone else's. Because even though like I've been through stuff, you know, I still have my legs. I've got friends that are missing legs. You know, I like, I can compare myself to other people too and use that as justification not to take care of myself. But I'm not doing myself any favors if I do that. And the same is true for anyone else. And so like this idea that like I have to be equal to or worse than that other person before I do anything to help myself, it's kind of like an avoidance trick that we do to ourselves. Like rather than facing the hard thing and, and like really doing the work that I need to do to heal, I'm just going to tell myself I don't need it because they have it worse. And that's, you know, that's not helpful ultimately. Is it also maybe like avoidance, but also feeling that you might not even be worthy of help? Yeah. I mean, that, there certainly would be a layer of that too, probably, if you were to unpack it with somebody. Hmm. Um, well, thank you for that. And yeah, so I wanted to dive into the other big part of your 
practice, professional practice and anything you wanted to share personally around your experience using psychedelics and witnessing healing through the assistance of psychedelics in the you know therapeutic context and yeah just how did you get so interested in the in this field and we'll just let you go from there yeah so it started back when i was a therapist at the va probably five years ago now i had a couple of clients kind of just throughout the course of a year or so unbeknownst to me had gone and done some form of psychedelic therapy. One of them was MDMA, one of them was psilocybin, one of them was ayahuasca. And each time I was like, you know, admittedly like pretty skeptical because, you know, like the traditional assumption, like the war on drugs mentality is like, that's just drug seeking behavior, right? It's so, I was really skeptical. But I entertained it and I, and I would kind of probe with a line, a similar line of questioning that I would probably ask people after doing a bit of EMDR and just to see like how are memories being felt now? What kind of emotions are there? What's their sort of perception? How are they thinking about things? Because usually there's a shift that happens once you've done the deeper therapy work. And I was really kind of shocked to be hearing from these vets who had done these psychedelic experiences, the same type of answers I would have expected from somebody that had done quite a bit of EMDR. And so that really like piqued my interest. And, you know, I started doing some reading. I read that famous book by Michael Pollan. I think it's called How to Change Your Mind. He, he dives into the research and the history and I realized like there's a lot there's been a lot here all along since you know early 1900s and there's kind of this Michael Pollan called it a renaissance I think like a revitalization of research and interest in the therapeutic you know elements that exist with psychedelics and so a year or two passed and I saw this opportunity come up. The Bronx VA had gotten funding and partnered with MAPS, the entity that's been doing all the MDMA assisted therapy research. Mm -hmm. And they were offering a free training for VA and Department of Defense therapists. And I was like, yes, I want to do that. <laughs> it was a hundred hour training a week long plus a bunch of online stuff and i really like it it's it showed what goes on with the mdma assisted therapy but it also had a, just a ton of really good knowledge around psychedelic therapy in general and kind of approaches people take and after that i was kind of sold and i really wanted to be able to start doing it but within the va i was kind of looking for signs um, you know, what's the potential there? And I wasn't seeing a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that plus multitude of other factors led me to deciding it's time to leave and start my own practice. And while I was starting my own practice, I was doing some research on, you know, like given that this is a controlled substance, these are controlled substances, unless we're talking about ketamine, like how are therapists navigating that? And I came across this paper talking about harm reduction and integration therapy, which kind of gives really clear guidelines on what licensed therapists can and can't do regarding psychedelic therapy work. And I kind of use that to inform my approach. And, you know, when we're talking about psychedelic assistant therapy, there's three phases. There's the preparation phase. So kind of understanding like what is this drug, what are these experiences meant to be like, kind of setting some intentions that you might want to focus on or work on with the assistance of the substance. And then there's the experiential phase, which is where like where you would actually ingest the substance and go on some kind of a psychedelic journey 
and have that therapeutic experience. And then there's the integration phase. And so the experiential phase with the controlled substance, I don't have anything to do with that. My, my work is focused on the preparation and the integration side through that harm reduction lens, kind of acknowledging that people are going to, people are, are smart enough to see what's going on in the world. They're going to have their own interests. They're probably going to pursue this stuff anyway. So at least, you know, be willing to have a conversation about it and, you know, encourage healthy, safe, legal options and you know, leverage the impacts toward their therapeutic goals. Uh, you know, one of the things I learned in doing the research and taking that course, the MDMA assisted therapy course, is these, whether it's MA or the psilocybin trials, these trials that, are, that we're reading about in the news with all these really great outcomes, they're using protocols that include three to five times more therapy, this traditional therapy sessions than sessions with the drugs themselves. And so like there's this huge element of ther just therapy. The, mm -hmm. ther the, way the type of therapy that I do, that most therapists do, they're doing that before, during, and after uh, the actual like psychedelic journey days. And so like there, there's a lot of support that therapists can do toward that end without being involved in the controlled substance stuff at all. And so like for with, with the way things are right now, like I'm glad to be able to contribute in that way. And I'm hoping that like, and I'm seeing every week, it seems like there's another state that's you know, introduced something in their house bills to decriminalize or recognize for therapeutic purposes. So like I see that there's probably going to come a day where the experiential phase will also become a legal option for therapists to participate in. But I also like the way that things are going right now with my practice, like, I don't even know if I want to do that. Like I, the model that I have where, you know, I'm seeing clients kind of hourly type sessions, you know, a big consideration with the experiential stuff is, you know, these are four or five like eight hour sessions with one client. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, for a private practice person, it would fundamentally change the mm -hmm. way that you do your work. I don't really know if that's something I want to do. And I, yeah. cause I know that like, there are a lot of people who are really excited about the experiential stuff anyway. So why not just let them do that? And I can continue to sort support clients after they've had that, you know, like important journey there's a lot of work to be done after just through therapy. Yeah. So that's kind of what I'm focused on. Oh, so it's, it's, I'm so interested in it myself. And thanks for sharing the framework there. And I'm curious for those folks who are already thinking about it, trying this. I know it's illegal in most places in North America. Still, there's some spots that it's not. I'm curious about your, I guess, guidance on the experiential phase. And, you know, for example, what I've learned pretty quickly looking at some of the research is uh, all these trials and like best practices so far are to have like two practitioners, trustworthy, experienced people. Yeah. So either sitting or guiding for you uh, during the psychedelic experience. What is, what would your kind of guidance be if someone was going <laughs> to, do this regardless of <laughs> yeah well that's so that's one of the that's a tricky thing is i cannot offer too specific of guidance got it uh, i i can kind of just provide education which is like what i would normally tell people is what you're describing that kind of two therapist model that is most common in the fda approved research that's mm -hmm. been going on. And so like that would be, and they're doing it because like, there's a lot of clinical reasons. There's also a lot of ethical reasons, you know, like we're talking about people that are in an altered ego, altered state of mind, altered state of consciousness and really susceptible to like 
inputs and having two people in the room sort of helps check that mm-hmm. there have been some horror stories that if, if you do the research you'll you can read about people who are yeah. not licensed practicing unethically but there's also this entire like group of underground therapists that have been doing this kind of work for decades and have you know their work has probably largely informed the approach that's being taken in the research trials and the train that you know there's trainings that are coming out this stuff isn't just coming out of thin air like there's been mm-hmm. decades of people practicing underground and you know I, I don't court or refer clients to any kind of underground therapist because that would be one of those yeah. things that kind of gets in the way of ethics. No, I, I get that. That's so I think the short of it is if people are curious about this, like definitely do the research. There are yeah. organizations like MAPS and there's several in Canada. There's definitely several in the US. Yeah. There's like schools so there, but, in Colorado that teach this kind of stuff, right? So there's good yeah. advice out there. <laughs> but there's also groups, there's religious groups in the US that are like exempt from these laws. Uh, and then there's groups, you know, in other countries where laws are different and a lot of them from what i understand they take sort of like the ceremony type approach Hmm. and so it's not really therapy it's a healing ceremony that you're doing that's informed Mm -hmm. by generations of indigenous practice over the eons there's therapeutic stuff happening in that context too so that's why it's like Whenever I'm talking to people about this, first read, understand what all is going on in this space, understand like what are the options, what are the safe, ethical, legal routes that you could consider, um, and you know, then decide what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. I, what I can focus on with you is what's the intention that you might want to have going into that type of experience. Like, how do we take what your state treatment goal is? And, you know, leverage that experience if you're going to pursue it in a way that will allow us to, like, get to that point once it comes to doing the integration work later on. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, like, I'm just a piece in that puzzle. And your job is to do your research and make a decision that's, you know, right for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to I'd love to just kind of close this conversation out around some of the promise that you see in this form of healing and medicine and like maybe you know what can happen if you go in with the you know in good set of intentions and the right support and the right integration why is this so exciting for you to be a part of yeah well i think there's a few ways i could go with that question i mean as an emdr therapist i'm really excited about the kind of the marriage of the two Um, because with psychedelics you know what some of the research has shown is it creates that that window of neuroplasticity in the brain where the brain is going to be more malleable more able to kind of shift patterns and adjust patterns to be more adaptive and healthy and if you can pair that with some really well well thought out emdr work I mean, there's a lot. I'm I'm really excited about that potential, just that alone. But you know, some people, the the psychedelic journey is not pleasant, and there are there's an there's been occasions where it's like, in its own right, been traumatic, and so like EMDR could be used theoretically to help process a traumatic psychedelic experience. Like that could be part of the integration work that happens. But if there's a good outcome or an insightful or productive outcome from a psychedelic journey that says like, it's kind of shot a spotlight on an area in your past that you need to address and resolve, EMDR integration work toward that can be super powerful and effective. Some people show up and like, have no idea what they need to work on, what they need to focus on. And EMDR could be used as sort of an exploratory tool to help identify 
what's what's underneath that needs to be addressed. And that might inform how somebody would set their intention before they do some kind of psychedelic experience. And there's a lot of different applications that I'm seeing that could really help like interplay between the two. And as an EMDR therapist, kind of first and foremost, that's what I'm most excited about. I love that. I'd love to just, you know, add to that question and get from you firsthand, like, why are you still a therapist? You know, what sort of, you know, what sort of things are you getting out of this work, regardless of what modality? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this question of why, I think it's an important one. And I often like don't always have in my in the forefront, but whenever I bring it back up, it helps me realign to kind of that North Star. And really it comes down to just being able to participate in healing the suffering that I see all over the place. You know, it, it, if I can work on my own suffering and support others to do the same, you know, even if it's just me and one other person that I help, like now there's two people in the world that are trying to do something to address the suffering that exists. So I can kind of amplify that. And that's why I'm like really trying to bring other therapists into this kind of awareness and the type of work that I'm doing is I, I want to optimize that healing potential as much as I can, knowing that I'm not here to like, save the world myself like that's impossible but if i can equip other people with the skills and the tools to help address suffering and to help individuals heal then that gives me hope because there's a lot of things if you look in the news right now that like it's hard to be hopeful for if you just get sucked into that but you know, every day I'm working with clients, I'm seeing people heal, I'm seeing people, you know, make those subtle shifts they they might need to make to change something about their life, to change something about their future, to make it so they can feel more right with themselves and their relationships. And every time I get to see that, it gives me hope. So that's for me, like, that's a huge part of it. I don't know, I don't know where I would be if I didn't have that as something that I could kind of count on yeah i love that i think it's beautiful and i did want to just add one observation from my perspective too just about this field and i've kind of worked on the periphery in five for about five years rather i hear often that people sometimes say that a lot of therapists have their own struggles or they're suffering from mental illness and that's why they become therapists or you know, and to me, that's a very like uneducated way of looking at it because hearing your story and just like even just witnessing you, we've chatted once before this, like the way that your nervous system appears to me to just you appear very regulated to me. like you, you appear very calm to me for someone Thanks. that's been in multiple war zones. And I imagine that's not come without work. Um, and I just think, yeah. like, in Why? my opinion, the people seeking healing and trying to alleviate their own suffering should work with folks like yourself who have done a shitload of work and really are, yeah, made it a vocation because this is what you do and what you're passionate about. And it's like, yeah, you've suffered. And yeah, sure, maybe you've had the PTSD diagnosis and maybe other diagnosis. Does that make you not equipped to help others heal i think that makes you more equipped and i think that's yeah. just a misconception that that bugs me because i i think you know until you can see the transformation that happens in this type of work no matter what it is i think it's incredible it's inspiring and yeah i just want to say thank you for coming on today and appreciate it sharing the story is there any kind of closing words or where can people find you or other practitioners find you and any messages just in general to close this out yeah, well, I really appreciate the opportunity. This has been awesome. And I mean, if people want to find me, they can go to my practice website, peakpsychotherapy.co. The column was taken. <laughs> peakpsychotherapy.co. And 
on there. I've got some resources for therapists also. I can only see clients in Washington state, uh, but I'm able to help therapists throughout the country. So yeah, that'd be a good place to start. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to connect with any, especially any therapists that are interested in this type of work. I'm trying to build a network of therapists that are, you know, exploring using psychedelic integration, harm reduction type work and what they already do. Because, you know, a lot of people, don't, a lot of therapists don't realize it, but it's not a big stretch from what you already do. It's just understanding how to have you know, conversations around this specific topic. So yeah, that's part of what I'm trying to build is a network of therapists that can kind of support each other while they're exploring that. Uh, but yeah, outside of that, I mean, I just really appreciate you having me on. This has been awesome. Awesome, Chris. Yeah, no, it's a super interesting conversation and I'm sure we'll chat again and there'll be more content from this podcast about this type of healing and this type of work because it's really exciting and hard to ignore so thanks chris have a great rest of your day yeah you too thank you for listening to this episode of the actualized podcast you can find the show notes for this episode, as well as all other episodes at firstsession.com slash podcast. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.